Now, we are studying the book of Judges together. And the theme of the book of Judges, as we have seen, is what happens when one nation under God turns away from God. The book, in totality, it consists of seven sin cycles, where the people of God begin in fellowship with Him, but then rebel and turn away, and then receive retribution for that rebellion as they turn, And then that retribution causes them to repent and eventually call upon the Lord, who then comes in sending in a judge or a deliverer to restore them, and then they go back to the beginning of the cycle is that they are again at rest. And so as we make our way through these chapters and verses, we see that seven times over a span of three to four hundred years, The people of God go through those sin cycles. So, seven sin cycles, 13 judges or saviors or heroes that are raised up in that time uh, to direct and lead the people of God back to their God. And we find that they're on a roller coaster. They go up and they go down, but that the overall trend is down. They're on a decline in turning away from the Lord. Now, we left off in chapter 11... In verse 28, we'll be picking up in 29, right in the middle of Jephthah's story. Jephthah, the sixth of, or I'm sorry, uh, the ninth of the judges that we have uh, and will look at. And we've seen that he is the son of a prominent man in Gilead, but he was the son also of a prostitute. His mother was a prostitute. He was, for that reason, rejected by his brothers And he became a leader of outcasts, men that went raiding against the enemies of Israel. He was then called upon by those brothers and the men of his hometown to come back and lead them against their enemies, the Ammonites, who had taken over and caused uh, bondage and slavery amongst the Israelites. And he agrees to do it, to come back and be their commander under one condition. And that is that the government rests upon his shoulders that if he comes back and leads them to victory, that he then becomes the judge or the head of the people, and the people agree to those terms. We saw that he then sought a diplomatic solution against their enemies. He sent a message to the king of the Ammonites, seeking terms and conditions of peace, but that message in the sermon, the history lesson that followed, was rejected then by the king of Ammon, and thus now they will go to battle. And that's where we pick up um, with Jephthah here in verse 29. Now thus far, Jephthah has been a great picture for us of our Savior, of Jesus. Jesus, who had a questionable background. Just like Jephthah was the son of a prostitute, Jesus was accused of being born of fornication. Just as Jephthah was rejected by his brothers, so also Jesus was rejected by his brothers, the Jews. They said, we will not have this man rule over us. Just like Jephthah became a leader of outcasts, so also Jesus has become the leader of outcasts. That's us, the lost, the last, and the least. He's become our hero. Just as one day the brethren of Jesus will say, come and help us, And be our head, so also Jesus will one day be received by his brothers, the Jews, and he will then again be their head um, that that, that they need. And so we've seen that he is a perfect picture for us of Jesus in his his upraising as a judge over Israel. But now we go from Jephthah the Savior, whose story has been very, very good, to now Jephthah the man. And the story continues to be good, but we see the frailties now of this leader, this man, as we continue on in the story. And so we're in verse 29, and we come to Jephthah's tragic vow. Notice with me. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up 
as a burnt offering. Notice with me right at the beginning of verse 29 there that it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. This is the third time that we've seen this phrase now in the book of Judges. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and now it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Notice that word, upon, because that's the key phrase that highlights the relationship of Jephthah to the Spirit. The Spirit came upon him, thus empowering him unto the thing that God is calling him to. Throughout the Old Testament, we'll see the Spirit of God come upon various people in various seasons for specific purposes. And that's the way the Holy Spirit empowered saints of God throughout the entire time of the Old Testament. However, Jesus made a promise. He said that the Spirit of God is with you, but He shall be in you. And then He told His disciples, just after His resurrection from the dead, He said, but wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured poured out, not on a few, for a specific season, for a specific task, but it was poured out upon all who would profess faith in Jesus Christ and call upon His name. And thus the power of the Holy Spirit for us to live the Christian life and thus fulfill the calling that God has for each one of us, that Spirit has been poured out for all of us to drink of. And it is the birthright of every Christian to be baptized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see that Spirit coming upon Jephthah here and praise the Lord that it's our birthright to experience that same coming upon in our own lives that we might be used and fruitful in the name of the Lord. But notice then that as he goes out to this battle, that he gives this vow. And it turns out to be a tragic vow, as we'll see in the ensuing verses. He says to God that if you give me victory and I return in peace, then I will give to you by way of offering or sacrifice that which comes out of the doors of my house to meet when I get home. Now, no doubt he was thinking that it would be a lamb or a sheep or an ox or some article of livestock quality of sacrifice. But he doesn't know what's going to come and meet him when he comes out of his house is the daughter, his only daughter, that he has. And so it turns out to be a very tragic vow that Jephthah gives. Now, concerning vows in the Old Testament and in the Bible, there are three passages that deal with the giving of a vow. There's one in uh, Leviticus, one in Numbers, and one in Deuteronomy. And the thing about a vow that someone would make to God is that it was always compulsory and never obligatory. In other words, God never demanded that anybody ever make a vow to Him at all for anything. But you could... And if you did, you were then expected to keep the vow that you gave. Those were the terms of the vow. So it's not required. So the question is, why does Jephthah give this vow at this time when God has already raised him up for this purpose of going out to fight his enemies? Well, first of all, it might be just because he is quite simply afraid. How would you feel if you were about to go and face an enemy that was much stronger than you, much more advanced militarily and equipped, you know, with weaponry? How would you feel? I know I would be a little bit timid, and perhaps he thought, well, if I make a vow, it will just move God that much more to work on my behalf because he gets something out of the deal. We saw in the last verses last week that Jephthah was a man who had a handle upon the word of God. He gave a history lesson to the king of the Ammonites of how Israel had gained the land that was being disputed in the conflict. So he had a knowledge of the word of God. Now, interestingly, in the chapter of the book of Numbers that gives that history, we see that the children of Israel were attacked in that time by a Canaanite king named Atharim. And when they were attacked, they made a vow to God that they would do something for him if he gave them the victory, and he gave them the victory. So it could very well be that Jephthah saw that as he was looking through and seeing the history, and he said, hey, it worked for them, maybe it'll work for me. And so Jephthah gives this vow. It could be just plain out of fear. It also could be this, that although Jephthah knew the word of God, He didn't yet fully know the heart of God. 
As we've seen throughout the book of Judges, many of these judges, these saviors, these men and women mightily used of God, are raised up rather quickly. God comes into their life. He reveals himself in a supernatural way. He equips them and calls them for a task and then sends them immediately into it, not knowing much about God or having had much history with God themselves. And so they knew things about God, but they weren't intimate with him personally, having that living relationship and fellowship with him. Here's the thing about walking with God, is that there is no limit to how fast you can learn facts about God. You can learn things about God very quickly. I know for me, as a young Christian, I couldn't get enough of the Bible. I know that's many of your story as well. You you can't get enough. The lights are on. It makes sense. And so you're reading scripture constantly. You're hearing teachings continually. You're exposed to spiritual things all the time. And you learn about God in your mind quickly. But there's no substitute for time as it concerns the sinking of that knowledge from the mind into the heart and the experience. It, it takes time. It takes experience. It takes fellowship with him. It takes, it takes some trials, watching God come through until you come to a point where you realize, wow, he's for me, he loves me, and I don't have to strive or worry about how things are going to work out. It's interesting to watch my, uh, my youngest son, Noah. He's just four months and he doesn't trust us yet. He's, you know, he's a great little boy. He's got this beautiful dimple, you know, when he smiles. But he doesn't trust us. And he really believes that if he wants to eat, then he has got to do things a certain way. And so he screams at the top of his lungs. And he writhes. And there's desperation. And there's commotion. And, and, and all this stuff. And he really believes that unless he does all of those things, he's not going to eat. That we don't really want to feed him. And thus it isn't until he shows a lot of desperation that we actually will give him the things that he needs. He doesn't know yet that we want to. And that we're willing and that we're going to give him everything that he needs. But I can just imagine his little mindset. He's just thinking, well... All I do is just lay here. Everyone else is is putting dishes away or vacuuming, cleaning up, doing schoolwork. All I do is just lay here. I don't deserve anything from my parents. But I know I have a need. I know I need something. So what do I do? And, And there's this conflict inside. Well, I can't just wait. Because it'll never come. I mean, so I've got to do something. And so he starts screaming. He starts crying. He starts making commotion and and showing us how desperate he is. And then we say, all right, we'll feed you. you (laughs) But isn't that just like us in our walk with the Lord? We're born again. We come into this walk with him, this relationship with him. We're saved, and he's real to us. We have a parent, a father. We're alive, you know. The difference in us is as radical as from the womb is to real life is for a baby. That's what it's like for us. But we yet don't know how willing he is to help us. And so we think, well, if God's going to work on my behalf, if God's going to give me the things that I need, then there better be a certain amount of noise. And we start to cry. And we start to stir ourselves up. And we start to say, oh God, please, I'm desperate, I need you. And we think that unless there's a certain degree of emotion and desperation and shouting, that God's not going to help us. And it could very well be that that's the motivation behind the vow of Jephthah. Well, maybe God doesn't want to help me. And so I have to show him that I'm serious. Here's the fact of the matter. The Bible says this. The Bible says, Jesus said, that there is no need for us to make vows before God. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he said that all of the promises of God are yes and amen for you and I. Not because of a vow that we make, but because of the position that we hold as those that are in Christ Jesus. Those promises are ours. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said these words, I love them. He said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's his heart. And Paul would write to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 32, and say that if God spared not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how much more will he not now with him freely give us all things? 
There's no reason for us to try to make vows and promises to God to get him to move on our behalf. He loves us. He loves you. And he wants to work on your behalf. And he says, all you've got to do is ask. Your heavenly father knows the things that you have need of before you even ask. So ask. But Jephthah makes a vow. What's the outcome? Notice in verse 32. It says, so Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Eror as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel-Karamim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Now when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, I know that some of you with disbelief are thinking, because you didn't read ahead, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on here? Truly, before us lies one of the most difficult passages in the Bible for us to look at, untie, and understand what's going on. And one of the long-standing debates among the people of God is, what really happened here? Did Jephthah really sacrifice his daughter to the Lord, killing her? Or did he just dedicate her to a perpetual service to the Lord, wherein she would remain a virgin, uh, live forever in the temple precincts, and never uh, marry or give children uh, to anyone? And, And people debate. They go back and forth as to which happened. Now, those who say that he actually did it, that Jephthah sacrificed his daughter to the Lord, they point out and highlight the following things in the text that give them their clues. First of all, the vow. He made a vow that whatever came to meet him from his house would be offered to the Lord, and the word for offering is the word that's used for a burnt offering. The second thing they'll point out is the resolve with which Jephthah had when he met his daughter and said, I cannot go back on what I have said to the Lord. The third thing that they'll point out is the response. That he said, you've brought me very low and you've become one of those that trouble me. You know, that he was really, really, really upset about it. You know, and then, uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, what, what he says in verse 39, that he carried out the vow, which he has vowed when it says that, and then the lament that the daughters of, of, of Israel had each year in verse 40, that it says that they went four days into the mountain. Now, he, here's, here's the elephant in the room in all of this, is that the childlike interpretation of Scripture is usually the most accurate. When you have to make it say something that, you know, it's not clear or you untie, usually you're off. However, there are those that look at this and they point out different things. That he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter, burning her, but that he did dedicate her to service in the temple. And they point that out for these reasons. First of all, Jephthah knew the word of God. We saw that in last week's study. He was familiar with what God said, the law of Moses. And thus he knew that that act was absolutely forbidden by God. That human sacrifice is never asked for, it's never sanctioned. In fact, it's condemned and detestable in the eyes of God. And Jephthah would have known that, that it's an invalid vow. 
In other words, God wouldn't accept the terms of that vow being human. And they are right, those that say those things. Second of all, you could, according to the law of Moses, buy your way out of a vow legally. Leviticus chapter 27 says that if you make a vow, and you read the first eight verses of Leviticus 27, that if you make a vow that you cannot keep for a reason like this, that you can pay a sum of money that was determined by God that would meet the same standard as that vow. Now, let's say Jephthah didn't know that. I'm assuming that he did know that. I'm also assuming that someone would have told him. Jephthah, you don't have to do this. You know, there's two months that go by. Everybody's going to hear about what he's going to do. His daughter's lamenting with her friends. Someone's going to say, Jephthah, you know, you don't have to kill her. You could, you know, redeem from this vow. So that was also another thing. Another one is they point out is in verse 31. And I'll draw your attention uh, to the vow that Jephthah makes in verse 31. And look at the language. He vows and he says, Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now some Hebrew uh, linguistic scholars have pointed out that the word and that's used can also be translated or. In other words, he says that that whatever meets me when I return in peace shall surely be the Lord's or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. In other words, that if it's human, it will be dedicated to the Lord's service or if it's an animal, that which qualifies for offering, then it will become a sacrifice. Uh, the language does allow for that there. So human dedicated. Now there was an order of women that served in the temple perpetually. Uh, Exodus chapter 38, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see those things there. Another thing that they'll point out is this, is that repeatedly throughout the text, the problem, the issue, the grievance is not her death, but rather her virginity. Notice in verse 37, It says, then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was the daughter of Jephthah, I wouldn't be bewailing my virginity. I'd be bewailing my death, (laughs) you know, that I'm going to die. But she says, my virginity, again in verse 38. So he said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends, and she bewailed her virginity. And then notice in verse 39... It says that her father, he carried out his vow with her, which he vowed, she knew no man. That that's the, you know, addendum to the offering, is that she remained uh, a virgin. So they say, hey, this wasn't death, this was perpetual offering. She became the Lord's, and Jephthah had no offspring. And then finally, uh, the, the final point, and I think this is probably the most valid, is this. Is that Jephthah is upheld throughout the rest of the Bible, as a hero of the faith. In 1 Samuel chapter, uh, I think it's in chapter 12, Samuel upholds and mentions Jephthah of only two judges that are mentioned by him there as those that delivered Israel, and he's upheld very highly, esteemed very highly. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is the hall of faith, you know, in the Bible, where you read about all of the Heroes of Old Testament history. Jephthah is there listed and upheld as a hero of faith in God. And I'm certain of this, is that if he had gone through and actually sacrificed his daughter, he would not be upheld in that same light. And so, where do I stand as I look at both sides of this? I cannot believe personally that Jephthah went through with this offering, an abomination to God that he forbade and said, this is detestable and I will curse this. I don't believe that Jephthah killed his daughter, but rather she was, in fact, dedicated to the service of the Lord in uh, the temple. But here's the point of all this. Don't make a vow. (laughs) Because the Bible says that we don't have to. In fact, Jesus told us not to. And that you don't have to bribe God into helping you in the things that he promises that he's going to do within your life. We move on into chapter 12. Now, chapter 12 is really the epilogue of Jephthah's life and ministry. Unfortunately, as the pattern has been throughout, the story doesn't end as well as it begins, you know, for Jephthah. Though the people of God have been liberated from their enemies, 
Instead of a spiritual revival and celebration, they descend into what becomes a bloody civil war, infighting among themselves. Now, anytime there's civil war in a nation, that becomes the dark spot of that nation's existence. Because they're not fighting against a foreign entity, but rather they're fighting against themselves. And it's one thing when it's a nation. It's another thing when it's God's nation. But it's worse when it's just amongst the people of God. Now, civil war, factions, divisions, infighting between God's people is nothing new. It's been happening as old, as long as there have been people of God on the earth, and it does even into the present day. You recall from our study in the book of Joshua, that just prior to his death, when the two and a half tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan River went over to take their inheritance, they built an altar. And that altar became the source of contention, and that contention almost led to a civil war between the nations. We saw back after Gideon gained victory over the enemies of God, there was almost civil war as the same tribe that we'll see here, Ephraim, uh, brings contention to Gideon uh, and, and they almost descend into civil war. Here, they actually do. Once we go into the future, into the reign of Solomon and beyond, we'll see that the kingdom of Israel is actually divided into two nations, Judah in the south and the ten nations to the north. And there's a constant civil war that erupts between the southern tribe and the northern tribes for hundreds of years, all the way up until the captivity uh, at the end of the, the king history. You know? And so we saw that constantly. How about in the New Testament? We saw that there was division, civil war amongst God's people, amongst Jesus' disciples. Three times while he was yet with them, we saw it happen. They came to Jesus and they said, Lord, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but they don't walk with us, so we forbade them. And Jesus said, what? Hey, he that's not against me is for me. Why are you doing that? There was another time that they said the same thing, and, and, and the disciples said, do you want us to call down fire from heaven upon them like Elijah did? And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. That's not what I came to do. You know, what are you talking about? We saw that even at the Last Supper, that most holy time when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, we saw that the disciples were fighting amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest. And again, Jesus had to say, you guys got it all wrong. Look at me as an example. I didn't come to be the greatest or to be served. I came to serve and to lay my life down to ransom for many. And so we saw it even in the life of Jesus. The Apostle Paul had to correct the church in Corinth because they were constantly fighting. There was contention amongst the Christians in Corinth. And what was it over? Styles of ministry. Some liked Apollos, who was more dynamic and forthright. Others liked Paul, who was more steady and foundational. Others liked Peter because he had direct ties to Jesus himself. And they would fight about these things. Who was more legitimate? What denomination here in the city you know, it is the most valid because of it. We read that in the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul had to write, because there was two women, Euodius and Syntyche, who apparently had gotten into an argument, and that argument had augmented to such a degree that it was about to divide the church. One said, you go get your friends, I'll go get mine, and we'll hash this thing out and see who's going to win. And Paul had to write and say, look, don't you understand? You're missing the whole point. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Even amongst the apostles, in Acts chapter 15, we see a division between Paul and Barnabas that becomes so sharp that the most impacting missionary team that ever existed was divided. And two missionary teams were sent out in, in their place, you know, because the contention was so sharp. And sadly, today, it's still common that civil war erupts amidst, amongst the people of God. What causes civil war or divisions or schisms amongst God's people? A couple things to consider. We can look at our text. The first one, if you're taking notes, division happens when the me thing upstages the main thing. Notice in verse 1. It says, Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, 
Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go out with you? We will burn your house down with fire. Now, you, you know, in some ways you got to, you know, appreciate these guys. You know, they're, they're very zealous, <laughs> you know, for the whole thing. But really, they've lost sight of everything. They are so far gone in terms of their understanding of what the whole big picture is about. These are the people of God. They belong to God. They existed to be in a relationship with God and to bear testimony to the surrounding nations of the abundant life of living in the Lord. That's why they existed. That was the reason. But what they had done is they had fallen into the mindset that they exist for themselves, unto themselves, to bring a name to themselves, and that it's all about me. You'll notice as you look at a map of the division of the tribes, the same map that we've seen uh, many times, you know, there, you'll notice, you'll see where Ephraim stands there amongst the nations of Israel. Where is it? It's dead center. It's right in the middle. And as their location was, so also their mentality became. That's it. It's all about us. We're the center of this whole thing. It's all about me. It's all about us. And we see that reflected here in this thing. Jephthah went out to battle. He gained a victory. Ephraim was unincluded in it. And they become offended because they now get no glory. And thus they want to burn Jephthah's house down with fire. Why? Because it's all about them. In John chapter 17... Jesus prayed the final prayer that he would pray before he would go to heaven to be with the Father eternally. And in that prayer, he prayed for us, for you and I, his people in future generations. And listen to the heartbeat of our Savior as he prays for us. John 17, beginning in verse 18. Jesus prays and he says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. And here's what he prays. That they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. That's what mattered to Jesus when he prayed. That was his hope and desire for the future body of Christ that was just upon the earth, even for us here today. That we would be one and that we'd be unified in him with his glory, in his spirit, for the purpose, listen, for the purpose of being an example to the world of who he is. And Jesus said that would be accomplished by our unity. Jesus said, the Bible says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by your love one for another. Jesus, think about it, God incarnate in human flesh, unclothed himself in the presence of his disciples, And he went around the room and washed their feet on the night that he would be betrayed and begin his passion upon the cross. He washed their feet. Imagine the holy hush that would be in that room as he moved from person to person, removing sandals. And the very Son of God, the spotless, eternal God, the God who spoke light into being in the very beginning, washed the feet of sinful men. And then when he was done, it says that he clothed himself, he stood up, and he spoke to them, and he said, Do you understand what I have done? If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. That our attitude, our mentality towards others is not, I'm over you, above you, the central focus of things, but rather, let me be your servant and serve you, and I'm not worthy even to wash your very feet. That's the attitude that we're supposed to be. When the people of God put themselves before the purpose of God. In other words, my gripe, the thing that I'm offended about, not being included or not being asked or being looked over or being stomped on or insulted, when my gripe 
take center stage in my mind as the most important thing, and I push the gospel to the side, I've, what I've done is I've taken the most beautiful thing that exists in all the universe, the gospel of Christ, and I've taken, pushed it aside and taken center stage and replaced it with the ugliest thing that exists in all the universe. And that's what division does. It takes the main thing and makes it a me thing. It's all about what I should be getting at this time. Here's rule number one of being a living witness for the Lord. It's not about me. It's not about you either. It's all about him. The second thing that causes division between the people of God is when complaining takes the place of contributing. Look at verse 2, back in Judges chapter 12. It says, And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon, and when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. Now notice this. Jephthah says, No, no, you've got the facts wrong. You're saying that you were overlooked and uninvited, but I did in fact invite you. But whether it was because of your own fear or your own skepticism concerning the success of the operation, or perhaps you were concerned about who would get the glory, Jephthah, me not being from your tribe, you didn't come. You didn't show up. You didn't contribute. But now yet you still feel that you have the right to complain about not being a part of a great victory, even though you chose yourself not to contribute. Now, this is the third time that we see the tribe of Ephraim complaining about something in the nation. It happened, first of all, in Joshua 18, when they received their inheritance. They said, we don't like the land that we've got. We deserve better. We deserve more. So give us more territory. And they complained about it. The response of Joshua to that was, hey, you guys know how to fight. Go get it. You want more land? Go take it. It's all before you. You can do it. And they said, well, it's too hard for us. And he said, well, too bad. But they complained. And he said, you're going to get your land. And they got it. But they complained about it. The second time was when Gideon fought his battle against the Midianites and was successful. And the same thing happened that happens here. Ephraim comes and they said, who are you that you would go to battle and not invite us along? And Gideon appeased them. He said, hey, you guys got to kill the princes. We chased them out, but you got to, to do the slaying. You had a part in it. And the people said, yeah, I guess you're right. And they went home appeased. But now it happens again with Jephthah. And they say, we're going to burn your house down upon you with fire. Here's what's going on with these people. They want the reward, the spoils, but they don't want the risk. They don't want to contribute and roll up their sleeves and be a part of what needed to be done. But yet they wanted to reap some of the glory of it. The tribe of Ephraim still exists amongst the people of God today. There are people that complain about being overlooked or about the way things are, but yet they're not willing to roll up their sleeves and take territory or be a part of what God's doing. They, have, they exist in the church. They'll complain about the way things are or what's not being done or if something is done the way it was done or who was used to get it done. But yet, so often, those same people that complain are unwilling themselves to roll up their sleeves and get involved. And that causes divisions in the church. When complaining takes the place of contributing. Number three, the third cause of division within the church, is when Christians are easily offendable. The Apostle Paul wrote again, as I said before, to Corinth, and he basically said to them that division and schisms were a mark of baby or immature Christians. And then he said to them, just a few chapters later, 1 Corinthians, it's chapter 6, verse 7. It got to the point where they were actually suing each other. Christian was suing another Christian and bringing him to court in the city of Corinth. And Paul rebukes them. He says in verse 7, he says, Now therefore... It is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? In other words, the proper mentality of a mature Christian is that we always take the low road. Is that we always remain in a place where we are willing to say, yeah, I'm wrong. You say, but, but, but pastor, you don't know the reason I'm offended. Or what's been done to me. I'm not wrong. In fact, I'm absolutely right. Let me appeal to your argument for one moment. Do you know what the statement that Jesus was making was when he hung on the cross? Do you know what Jesus, the Son of God, was saying to a sinful world as he hung on the cross? Metaphorically, he was saying, 
okay, I'm wrong. That's what Jesus was doing. Think about it. Man was at war with God. The created was fighting against the creator. And there was a breach, a break. Death ensued because of man's separation from God. There was an argument. There was a legal matter, something that needed to be settled. And man was shaking his fist at God and saying, we are right, we are right, we, you have no right to, to, to demand anything of us. And God would look at man and say, I made you, I'm holy, shall the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me thus? And there was an argument between earth and heaven. Who was right? Was it us? No. God is holy, God's perfect, he was right. But what did he do? He humbled himself. He became a man. He let his creation crucify him. And he bled out on a cross and died. And he declared to the world, okay, for the sake of reconciliation, I will bear the fault. I was wrong. And even though he was right, he became wrong for the sake of restoring the relationship. That's the gospel. That's what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do. Suffer yourself to be wrong, to be cheated. Take the low road. David, in Psalm chapter 15, he asks the question, who shall abide in God's holy hill? Who's going to stand in his presence? Then he gives a list of things. And in verse 4, the last thing is this. He says, those who suffer themselves to be cheated or that swear to their own hurt and do not change. In other words, the attitude of the mature Christian is that I'm going to be willing to be offended and I'm not going to let it get in. I'm not going to be easily offended. That is a huge problem in our society today, how easy it is to offend people. Riley, my two-year-old, is into Winnie the Pooh. And so uh, when he wakes up from his nap, he's a little groggy, as many two-year-olds are, and Winnie the Pooh will be on the TV, and we will watch him get stuck in Rabbit's honey hole uh, for the 10,000th time, you know, as he eats himself thick, you know, there. And so, but here's, here's the point why I bring that up, is because today, while we were eating together, my family and I, we got into a discussion about the gender of Rabbit, Okay. And, and nobody really knew what the gender was. And I said, I'm almost positive that rabbit's a female. And they said, no, no, rabbit's a male. And, and I said, no, rabbit is a female. She's, an, she's like an ornery. And my wife looked at me. <laughs> and she said, man. And I said, yes, honey. You know. <laughs> but here's the point. Is, here's the point. Is... How easy is it to offend people in these days? If I had said it, if I had said, she's like an ornery, I don't even want to say it here, I'll get a letter, you know. (laughs) Why? Because we're so easy to offend. How do we get like that? How do we get, as Christians, to become a people where we think that we have this entitlement that we should be respected? Or that we should be treated with dignity? We shouldn't. Who are we? Jacob said, I'm a worm. God said to Jacob, you're a worm. What are we? We're dirt. We're nothing. See, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who humbled himself. Don't be easily offended. And if you're offended at someone right now, repent. Repent of it. And take the low road. The low road is the high road. Number four is jealousy and envy. Jealousy and envy. Notice in verse 3, back in Judges chapter 12. He says, so when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and I crossed over against the people of uh, of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up against me this day to fight against me? Jephthah says, you didn't come and help me when I called. There was a need, that need needed to be met. And so I took my people and I went over and God delivered them into my hand. So why are you fighting against me? God gave me the victory. I'm not even seeking the glory for myself. The glory belongs to God. So why are you fighting against me? And the implication is this. Is that you wanted glory for yourself. That's what you wanted. And your motivation for being here this day, for wanting to burn my house upon me with fire, is because you're jealous that your tribe, your people, aren't getting the credit for what took place. You're ignoring the fact that we've been delivered from our enemies. That we are now free to serve God. And you're willing to split the nation because you were not invited. 
Jealousy is the most insidious and destructive substance in all of the world. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 4 says it like this. It says, wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy? Now think about that for just a minute. Have you ever had someone really, really angry at you? I mean like really angry to where you'd call it wrath or rage. That's bad. I've experienced that. It's fearful. It's like it's powerful. But what the wise man is saying here is that that emotion of wrath or rage is nothing compared to that of envy. Because when someone's angry, that anger will pass. If there's rage or wrath, that'll come as a wave and it'll fade. But if someone is jealous of you, if you have someone who is literally jealous of you, that's worse. Because jealousy will drive, will burn in someone's heart to a point where they will kill you. And that's what's taking place here amongst this tribe of Ephraim. It's interesting uh, that we see this here. And then number five, and I think this is one that we need to consider ourselves too in terms of what causes division. Number five, very simply, one word, Satan. Satan is the master of using assumptions, appearances, and emotions, and then putting them on steroids and deceiving us into thinking that our appearances, emotions, and assumptions are the reality of a situation. And he is always seeking to divide. That's his M.O. He'll do it in a marriage, he'll do it in a friendship, and he'll do it in a church. And if we allow him to have that foothold, then he will wreak havoc among us. And we see it. He's very good at it. It's interesting. Someone portrayed the picture one time of the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, the church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus is there standing, waiting to see his bride. And, you know, the guests are there. And it's the celestial ceremony that everybody's been waiting for throughout all the ages. And as the bride of Christ comes through the door, there's a gasp amongst those that are in attendance. Because they see the bride and her face is marred and her dress is torn. And her body is twisted and limping and it's all beat up and divided. And people look and say, what happened to her? And they say, well, she did it to herself. And the caption was, doesn't he deserve better? When you look around the church today, the people of God, and you see how divided we are, how, how much we wound and beat each other, how crippled we've become as bearing fruit in this world because of our jealousy, our, all of these things that we look at here that we allow to divide us. Doesn't he deserve better? That's the question. And so this division that exists. Now, you say, okay, so how do you handle it when you feel like you're the Jephthah? What do I do when there's an offense, when, there, when someone has a gripe, and, 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 and I'm the Jephthah? In other words, I'm really right, because Jephthah was really right here. How do I handle that? Because we all find ourselves in that place from time to time. Three things that you're to do. Number one is look up. Number two is look in. And number three is settle down. Number one, look up. I like to read Psalm 139. When I read Psalm 139 which is a prayer basically asking God to search. David says, search me. And then he reminds himself of God's sovereignty, that he searches and he sees. And it causes me to get my eyes off of what's going on in front of me and to see what's going on in heaven, that God is in control of all things. So I look up. Number two, then I look in. I like to read Psalm 25 and Psalm 26. Because they're very searching psalms. You look at them and it causes you to examine your own heart. Am I the one who's wrong right now? In my offense and in my anger or in my envy, am I perhaps blind to the fact that I'm the one who's really at fault in this situation? And so I'm looking in and I'm allowing God to give him a chance to say, yeah, you're wrong, you're off. And you know what's amazing is that oftentimes when there's a conflict, you find that even if you're right, there's something about you that's wrong. And so it causes you to look in. And once you look up and look in, then you'll settle down. Because over and over again you read, and what does the Bible say? It says, wait upon the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Give Him place. Over and over again, the Bible says, trust in Him. Put your faith in Him. The Bible says, don't avenge yourself. Don't be quick to go into battle and fight with someone else, but give God a chance, give God a place to work things out. If it's someone else's fault, God will deal with them. If it's your fault, God will reveal it to you, and then you can get right with him, and the thing can pass. And if it's Satan, well, the Bible says that no weapon that's formed against you will prosper. I have found that when it's Satan who's working divisively, 
if you just look up, look in, and settle down, that division will pass, and the church will go unscathed because God won't let it work out. It'll pass. And so look up, look in, settle down. Now, I wish I could say that this is how Jephthah handled the situation. It's not. Notice with me back in verse 4. It says, Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. So he bites the bait. He goes to war. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassehites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the uh, Ephraimites arrived. You'll notice that that word's in italics. I think it should say departed because if you look back in verse 1, they already crossed over from uh, Ephraim across the Jordan River into Gad. And so what happens now is that uh, Jephthah's men, they block off the passage home so that the Ephraimites can't get back over the river into their own territory. And so here's what happens. It says, And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Shibboleth. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan, and there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. And so Ephraim crosses the Jordan. They lose a battle. The men of Jephthah block the passage home, and when the Ephraimites retreat and try to make their way home, there's a simple phonetic test. Say Shibboleth. Well, not you. I meant that's... <laughs> Die, Ephraimite! No. <laughs> they couldn't say the SH sound, and then they would be then killed, and so 42,000 of the people of God die in the civil war that happens. And then Jephthah's story wraps up. Verse 7 it says, And Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. Now you can read on your own the rest of the chapter. There are three more judges. They are considered minor judges. Very little is written about what they did. They had a lot of donkeys and a lot of sons and daughters. And there's not much more to their name. Their reigns are relatively short. And when we get into chapter 13 and our next time the week after Thanksgiving, we'll see the beginning of the story of Samson, the final judge that we have laid out for us here, this classic story of this man who started so good and fell so hard. As we close, I think Jephthah is one of my personal favorite judges. Not because he's a picture of Christ, not because of his situational wisdom, not because of the victory that he had against the Ammonites, not because of his mental and you know, military toughness with his opposition there with the Ephraimites. But here's why. It's because Jephthah is upheld so highly in the Scripture. In spite of his background, which was somewhat shady, his foolish vow and his ill-tempered response to the Ephraimites, and the fact that he only reigned six years, he's upheld by Samuel, and then again, in the, as the, you know, in the New Testament, in the writing to the Hebrews, as a hero of the faith. And he's listed, he's only one of four judges that are listed in the Hall of Faith. You know what the four judges are? Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Of all the judges that, that, that exist, those four, why are those four listed? Well, when you look at Barak, you see that he was fearful. He needed Deborah to go with him or else he was afraid to fight the battle. When you look at Gideon, we see that his leadership style was so bad that what happened as soon as he died, well, the nation went into a tailspin. He was a terrible leader. When you look at Jephthah and you see, well, Jephthah, you had some wisdom, but, I mean, really, your vow, your willingness to murder 42,000 of your own people, I mean, really, Jephthah? And Samson, I mean, we're going to see what happens to Samson. We say, well, why would God uphold them so highly in Scripture? Here's why. Because God is a God of grace. And this is why I love Jephthah. It's because the testimony of Jephthah's life to you and to me is that God's not looking for someone who's perfect, who's got it all together, whose background and education and everything about them is just tightly put right where it's supposed to be and you never have any failure in your life. 
And you're the picture of wisdom and beauty. And you're a leader that's flawless and you never make a mistake. God's not looking for those people. Quite frankly, those people don't really exist. But God's looking for someone who's willing to come to the end of themselves to recognize that they can do nothing apart from him. And those are the people that God wants to show himself strong on behalf of them. I think one of the biggest obstacles that stand between a Christian and a fruitful future or a fruitful legacy is when one begins to trust in their progress instead of just in their position. Because here's what can happen, is that you can start to think, okay, well, I've been walking with the Lord for a little while now. I know I'm saved by grace. I know it's not by works, lest any man should boast. I understand that. But here I'm walking with God for a little while now, and you know what? I've gotten victory over some sin in my life. There were some real struggles early on that I didn't know if I would get past those things, but I've gotten past those things. And now there's some disciplines on my prayer life. Is, it's not what it should be, but it's okay. It's there. It exists. And I've learned a lot of things. I'm getting a handle on the Bible, and I know who God is, and I have some theology, and I understand good doctrine, and I have that. That's there. It's in my life. I've discovered what my gifts are, and I'm using them. I'm engaged in kingdom activity. I'm a part of a church. I attend Bible studies. I walk in a degree of obedience. Again, I know I'm not perfect, but, but God, you're taking me there. And he, here's what can happen. Is that as you become mature and you become strong in your faith, you can begin to become confident in those qualifications and lessen your position as just being a sinner saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. See, the only merit that we really have before the throne of God is Christ. Three times the voice of God spoke in the New Testament. What did he say? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. To Peter personally, he said, this is my son. Hear him. Jesus said, glorify your name. And he said, I have glorified it and I yet will glorify it. Do you know what moves the heart of God? Jesus. And do you know what causes God to move on someone's behalf? Is when we are in Jesus. See, it's not our boast of what we are or what we've become or how spiritual or how holy or how much we pray or what we've got. None of that does anything for us before God. What pleases God is when we trust and rely completely upon Jesus. Now listen, I am not saying to you that you should go out and sin like crazy and blow it like Jephthah and Gideon and Samson because then God will use you. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that God loves to use and bless the person who knows that it's only Jesus. That it's nothing else. It's nothing in me. It's all in him. I think sometimes, church, we need to repent of our righteousness. We become like the older son in the prodigal story. The younger son goes out. He blows his father's lemming. He ruins his life. And we look on with disdain and we say, look at that sinful person out there. But meanwhile, we're there in our father's house filled with envy, jealousy, bitterness. And we're living a quarter, a fraction of what we should be in the Father's glory. And we see the Father begin to use someone who is sinful or wayward. And we get jealous. We say, why would he use them? Why would God use a Jephthah to become Ephraim? You know why? Because it brings God glory. It brings God glory when it's because of Jesus that he can use a person. So may we repent of our righteousness. May we look at these men and say, God, if you can use them, what can you do with a sinner like me? In Jesus' name, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. We would ask that you would cause it to be written deep within the tablets of our heart and soul. That through the things that we've heard and seen, we might become more like you. That we might have less of us And trust more in Jesus. You said, Lord, that without you we can do nothing. And so I pray tonight, Lord, that you would forgive us for where we've trusted in ourselves. Or where we've in confidence moved in a way where because of what we've done or our performance, we think that you will bless us. Teach us, O Lord, to trust only in you. That you would be our life, our light, our hope, our strength, our all. 
May we find ourselves tonight, Lord, filled with your love, filled with your favor, filled with a fresh vision of Jesus and the cross and the blood that was shed for us. And may we never leave from that place of trusting in the simplicity of that finished work. So fill us again, O Lord, and send us forth with the joy and the strength of knowing you, walking with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.